Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. My name is David Schwartz. I'm the Chief Curator of Film here at the Museum of the Moving Image, and I want to welcome you to this very special evening. There was a legendary preview screening of One from the Heart on a winter night in 1982 at Radio City Music Hall where uh, Francis Ford Coppola rented out the theater and actually fed the audience. He got split pea soup with sausage for the, for the entire audience. And um, he did the same thing tonight. He fed you and now uh, is going to show you this wonderful movie which has been beautifully restored. And this is the New York premiere of its restoration. Please welcome Francis Ford Coppola. Thank you. How many folks in the audience actually uh, were there on that fateful night in uh, Ra at Radio City Musical? Well, <laughs> yeah, it was cold. And in fact, the, the soup was really passed out on the lines of people who were waiting to get in. So they were freezing. And we thought, well, if we give them hot soup, they, they won't freeze. So that was the reason that we passed <laughs> that out. At any rate, um, thank you so much for this invitation. And congratulations on the museum, which I just... I have most of that stuff in my garage, actually. Because I, <laughs> I would buy it every year that it came out, you know, when I didn't have the heart to sell it. But uh, thanks so much for this, uh, this, inv this kind invitation and, and to come and see uh, One from the Heart. Uh, very briefly, uh, as you probably know, One from the Heart really in my mind was an experiment. Uh, we had bought a new studio and we had made it an electronic studio because in those days I was sure that the cinema was going to become an electronic uh, medium. And uh, I was very interested in the idea of live cinema, which is to say, what if uh, you rehearsed a piece and you built all the sets so that they followed the continuity of the story and then you just said to the actors, go, and the actors would perform the entire film uh, as they used to in the golden age of television. Uh, those of you who were fortunate are fortunate enough to have seen some of the great uh, live TV, especially done by John Frankenheimer. And that was the idea behind uh, One from the Heart, that we were going to try to make live cinema. And uh, it was to combine a lot of uh, elements of, of theater and television and cinema, and, 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 but coupled with live performance. In the end, for lots of technical reasons, we sort of had to back off a little bit uh, uh, with the necessary amount of multiple cameras so that you could really... S you know, I always wanted to sit in the, in the control room and say, three two, four, and, you know, edit it while you go. I didn't quite get to do, but you'll, you'll see some of that in it. As you know, it's all, uh, it was all shot on, on a studio, uh, even scenes in Las Vegas, and people said, why did you build Las Vegas for it? was just right around the block, just go to Las Vegas, and it was because of this idea of, of shooting live cinema. So as you watch it, it's just a simple fable, and it was a musical fable. In those days, it wasn't really feasible to think about doing a musical, uh, Again, they, uh, musicals were out, and so I uh, thought, well, what, what if we had songs of uh, a male and female singer, sort of like the characters in the story commenting on the story, sort of like Zeus and Hera, we used to say, you know, the perennial issues between uh, men and women, but sung in songs, uh, even though the main characters didn't sing. And to do this, uh, I had the great foresight to hire Tom Waits at that time was 
uh, you know, not the, uh, the, didn't have the incredible regard we all have for him now. And he came on and wrote these songs and sang them along with Crystal Gale. Tom couldn't be here or hasn't, uh, well, we don't know where he is exactly, but <laughs> one little thing I ask you to note is that this is one of the few movies you'll ever see in a screening room again with the classic one three three to one aspect ratio uh, unless you're seeing films made before the 50s, which were all made that way. It was notably nice because when you photographed actors in closer shots, you could see their hands. <laughs> and today, you know, it's like that. You don't see any hands, just a great big face. So this was shot. I, it was my vain attempt to maybe bring back uh, what I thought was a beautiful aspect ratio. So it's a simple film. You know, it was, as I said, an ex experiment to try to use uh, styles of theater and television and, and cinema all mixed up together. There are some directors who um, just won't look back at their films. Not only do you look back, but you work with them, do a um, little tinkering, bring them out again. Well, in this case, I mean, I look at this tonight, and I think, well, what else was I going to do after Apocalypse Now? I <laughs> Definitely, for my own sanity, I wanted to do something. Uh, I realized more uh, in the vein of the college musicals I had right. come from, you know, I had, Apocalypse was such a distressing film and a, to work on, and uh, we began the um, practice of financing the films our, ourselves, so, you know, it's very terrifying to be involved in a, a motion picture production with, you know, costs spiraling and stuff and realizing you're on the hook, so the answer to your comment about why one would tinker with it is the truth of the matter is we own the film. You notice at the end it said copyright zoetrope and very rarely does a filmmaker, really a handful of filmmakers uh, have ended up actually owning the film. So, yeah. you know, this was in the in the garage kind of thing, yeah. you know, and, and I thought, gee, you know, it would be nice to uh, make a print that was in the spirit of what we were trying to do um, and, and, and and have a you know, have a definitive version because the uh, the end of working on this was such such a chaotic experience uh, mm. for reasons which we'll probably talk about yeah. momentarily. But the yeah. whole production was sort of falling apart around my ears, and I don't know that we really ever really quite finished it to be <laughs> honest. So all these years later, twenty years later, yeah. we owned the film, so we had the rights to be able to try to you know make a. a definitive version and restore it and yeah. and then preserve it both uh, in the print that you saw tonight and uh, in a DVD, which would yeah. be this version. And it was a true independent film in the sense that you put yourself on the line. I mean, you know, you mortgaged the studio, I believe. You, you uh, at one point didn't even have a home phone line. Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's sort of funny to think. It sounds really ridiculous when I say this, but we I was sure that Apocalypse Now was going to wipe us off the face of the right. earth. I had financed it and all of uh, my home and everything else I had was up uh, as the guarantee to the bank for Apocalypse. And I began to think, well, gee, maybe I'll make a little kind of simple film that will save us. Make <laughs> a lot of money, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> just a simple little love story or yeah. something. Maybe it will save us. And, of course, the irony is, and there's some wisdom for all of you out there who are involved in the creative arts, is that the, the, the Apocalypse turned out to be very successful and, and yeah. over years uh, – uh, did very well, and and uh, and one from the heart wiped me out. So <laughs> I know there's a moral of that. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but it's uh, <laughs> this film was made in a very interesting period because number one, it was the aftermath of Apocalypse Now. So uh, certainly, 
my mood was, you know, Apocalypse had been a very traumatizing film, and I desperately wanted to do something that was simple and sweet. Yeah. The decade before this, I mean, you'd, the, you'd, your films were The Godfather, The Godfather Part Two, The Conversation, and Apocalypse Now. So I don't think people right. sort of knew what to do with with this. Well, uh, one thing, you know, is true that you, when I was a young guy, I was... I went on an interview to do the the screenplay for the life of General Patton, and they asked me, well, do you have any military experience? I said, yes, of course. And, of course, that was that I had gone a year to New York Military Academy. So <laughs> so then all I would do was get offers to do military movies. And then, you know, of course, with The Godfather, all my main opportunity was to get to do gangster movies. And I, w- I was very anxious to do lots of different kinds of things, make films that were different from each other and to learn from the ability to be able to experiment. And I was convinced that, you know, the cinema was going to become digital cinema. And and we had bought a movie studio in L.A. in this mad period, and we had equipped it to be really a production facility that could make 30 movies a year. We had these facilities. And the only problem was we didn't have a uh, a first movie, a script. Yeah. Uh, I was hoping that Tucker would be the first movie and then that's when we yeah. came upon this uh, story one from the heart by Armin Bernstein and we said well, we'll make that the first film and just get <laughs> us started you know and, and of course um, there was only uh, yeah. there was only one film so there was the whole story of the studio going on the aftermath of Apocalypse Now and of course uh, the desire to do a musical Yeah, and this impulse to do musicals is something that seems re- really deep rooted you mentioned the musicals that you did at Hofstra mm-hmm. but also I mean I read an account of you as an 8 year old I believe doing puppet shows in your room with using tape recorders and record players and so this idea that theater means sort of playing around with technology and, and yeah well all, all art is, is technology I mean from the beginning if they yeah. were painting pictures they had to figure out how to make the oil paints Te- technology goes hand in hand with the arts yes I was a child also of television, and uh, I was paralyzed as a kid when I was nine years old. So all I did was watch television because I couldn't walk, I couldn't get out of the bed. So I, had, I was surrounded with puppets, and I had this television. This is before the remote control. You can imagine how frustrating that must be. When uh, <laughs> and I just loved television. I loved live television, and I just thought that was the most wonderful thing to be able to just have a performance. Of course, my my background in college was in theater. Mm -hmm. So I was really a child of all those influences, and I very much wanted to experiment and and really not just make one from the heart. I was hoping that the studio could just make, you know, as I said, 30 films because we had the magic machine that could do it. And, and, uh, you know, many things went wrong not not the least of the mistakes I, I made, I'm sure. We were losing the studio while we were making the movie. It was a pretty, mm-hmm. why I said it was an unusual period. We were making the film with great enthusiasm and what have you. And um, there's a thing called a blind bidding law, which uh, is a, a basically um, requires, um, state governments require that you show the movie to the- theater owners six months before they are going to have the chance to bid on them. And so, you know, we didn't have it ready, and we were still working on it, and, and ultimately a, a, a review was written. It's sort of a no-no for a review to come out on a blind bidding screening because it's supposed to be an understanding, but it, of course it did. And once that happened, after all the negative controversy about apocalypse going on, then it started with this, and our financing, uh, our source of money left us, and the crew all agreed, and the cast agreed to work for, you know, half salary. And so it was... 
it was um, it was like one of those Andy Hardy movies <laughs> right there on the set. Remember Terry Gar said a great thing when we all, when they all agreed that they would work without getting paid. She says, you know. She says, they say that time is money, but now time is just time. <laughs> uh, in terms of your love of old musicals, one of the, one of the names that we didn't see in the credits, um, but uh, who I think was involved with the film, was Gene Kelly. Yeah, Gene Kelly, very much so, and, and Michael Powell. But as the film changed from, from this exciting thing that was happening to, to like, uh-oh, they're in trouble and stuff, like a lot of people sort of began... <laughs> And the banks as well to distance themselves from it. So it was right. it was a really interesting period. There's some documentaries that uh, Kim has because Zoetrope always was interested in electronic cinema. So we we had uh, all those videotapes and and um, basically coverage of what was going on. And he made several documentaries that tell the story, just like the one with Tom Waits, but that tell the story of how we bought the studio. And the studio was across from a, a junior high school, <laughs> and uh, so I, uh, I, I, I was a, basically a drama counselor when I was young. I loved kids, and I went to the speak at a big, much bigger auditorium than this, uh, and and was telling the kids how they all have to have careers and creativity and stuff. And then I said, "Oh, you want to see the studio?" And it was like I don't know, seven hundred little. 13-year-olds, and they said, yeah, and I led them out across the street <laughs> and into the studio, and suddenly the studio was overrun by 13-year-olds, and we adopted the school, and we took on officially, uh, I think it was 25 or 30 apprentices. So the studio was an interesting place, because on one hand, it had Gene Kelly there, and Michael Powell, and mm. and uh, uh, and then it had these little 13-year-olds, uh, you know, like two apprentices working as Nastasia's assistant, you know, or in the art department, so it was really, uh, it was really a kind of utopian place, mm -hmm. uh, the studio, and it was, it was just like a movie, really, when we, we lost the money and we didn't know if we could go on and, and what have you. So, you know, when I see it, it brings back both the memories of what we thought we were trying to do and and the moment when we realized we couldn't really make it live the way I had intended to, and then at the same time this financial debacle going on. I mean, it's amazing how much was written about this film. We, I went to look at the, uh, the clippings at the Museum of Modern Art Film Study Center, the thick files of articles all about the business. You know, now we're sort of used to everybody uh, knowing how much films make and knowing about the business of film, but I don't think that was true at that time. Not at all. I was yeah. really offended when I first saw that they were going to publish the box office um, results of films, I thought it made it like sports, you know, where every mm -hmm. week you saw the score, and it did, yeah. it, it did, and and and, uh, um, and it was wrong, but I'm happy, there are a lot of aspects to this film, yeah. I mean, some that directly relate to the yeah. film, and why it is as it is, but then the what was surrounding, and I'm really yeah. happy to discuss any yeah. aspect okay. of it. In those days, I very much wanted to experiment, and I wanted yeah. to learn about, I thought the cinema was a form that had gone through its great period of uh, of creativity during the silent era when they really invented the language you know and they came up with the things that we now take for granted the close up and uh, into parallel editing and montage and and then once it became both the sound uh, period and then the studio control and business control cinema never uh, invented anything uh, much more maybe Jean-Luc Godard and some of the Europeans, but I always felt that the, the cinema is only a hundred years old, and we've only like learned maybe five percent of what it will be like. And I felt it was really important that we should just experiment a lot, yeah. so that we can, uh, you know, enlarge and, yeah. and develop the language 
which was what I was playing yeah. with. Then tell us about the process. I mean, it's part of, I think, what you did early on in the process was have sketches uh, that you started with and then had the actors do a, a radio play. I mean, that you literally... Oh, well, you know, nowadays that's pretty common, but we mm -hmm. had this idea that there was something called pre-visualization, mm -hmm. that since it was going to all be live and therefore all the sets were going to really be the the movie, in, in effect, that, uh, that you know, much as you see now when they do a Pixar film, you know, any of the films today use those, and they even call it pre-visualization, yeah. which uh, I used to take a lot of heat because I called it pre-visualization. Visualization. So, well, how can it be pre-visualization? Visualization is when you visualize it. And I said, yeah, but this is pre-that, you know. <laughs> so, but but those techniques are used, and um, oh, we did live. Everyone was there right during the scenes, the sound mixers, and everyone. You see some of the reels where it's just like ten minutes at a clip, and there isn't a cut in it, and it's more like uh, it's more like a, a, a live television. But the sound was being mixed into it at the time, yeah. and. Uh, it was quite a machine. That that studio, if it had remained intact, they could have made you know they could have made a, a hundred movies in the time that has elapsed instead of game shows, which is what they en ended up doing there. Mm -hmm. And the the impulse for the story it's a very it is a very touching story about people who you know lead sort of ordinary lives and and they have these fantasies that they call from movies and music and songs. Just where did that impulse? Well, come if from I told to you the real stuff? landscape of that, you really think I'm a <laughs> pompous idiot, but <laughs> in those days after Apocalypse Now, I had imagined that I was going to do this you know, great work, which was going to be a series of four films uh, loosely inspired by the Goethe novel Elective Affinities. Those of you who know Elective Affinities know it's one of the first modern novel, and it's a very simple story about uh, a man and his wife, and they're living in an absolutely wonderful place, and the man suggests, oh, you know, my friend, the captain, uh, he's an architect, and I thought it would be nice if he came and lived with us for a while and he could plan the gardens and stuff. And the wife says, well, you know, I really, we're so perfect and happy here that uh, I was going to say my niece is, uh, her, uh, her mother has died, and I was going to invite the niece uh, to come live. And they said, well, let's have the captain and the niece. So you have the basic setting of the man, the woman, the other man, the other wo woman. In Goethe's mind, he was working on a chemical formula, A, B, A prime, B prime. And I had a, a concept to make an ambitious film on that theme. And, and um, so that when I saw this one from the heart uh, uh, idea uh, that I could do in the studio, I thought, gee, that's the man, the woman, the other man, the other woman. And I thought, you know, one of the big problems in my career is I always wanted to write my own stuff. And writing a script, an original script, takes so long mm -hmm. that you're always stuck. Well, we got to do something this year. And uh, so I thought the one from the heart um, a piece, the fable, sort of fit in that general theme. And I even saved the sets because in my story, the man... Uh, and the woman, the man was a, a director like myself, and perhaps the woman was uh, like my wife. And, and I, I planned to one day take the sets and do the other scenes on the other side of the set. In other words, if you had the neon set with Terry Garr and Freddie Forrest, I was going to you know, save those sets. And, and when the darker part of the story, uh, which was the same theme, uh, was done, I, w I had planned to uh, have echoes, in other words, uh, as though... They were working on one from the heart with those same sets and stuff. And, of course, the idea for that script, I never was able to really 
tackle it or, or land it. But that was why I was interested in this theme. If, it, if no one's ever read Elective Affinities, it's a beautiful, beautiful novel. It sounds scary because it's Goethe, but it's very, <laughs> very passionate, very beautiful. And then in terms of style, the, the idea that every, or every element is, becomes expressive and it's sort of out there, the lighting, design, production design is made apparent. Well, also that. at that time, you know, my elective affinities I was talking about was going to be set in Japan. Hmm. I was going to set it in Japan because I even then wanted to examine, like, America and Japan as, like, the man, the woman in a way so that even within the culture of that same story, you know, you can fail as easily by making your goals too high as by making them too low. <laughs> That's something I've learned. <laughs> so I was very interested in Japan, and uh, we had gone through Japan a lot with my family during the, um, uh, the apocalypse now going back and forth. And so I, I was interested in kabuki in that kabuki is a form in which the, all the elements, the acting, the scenery, the lighting, the costumes, the dance, wh what have you, is, is not as linked as in Western theater where the scenery is always the background, you yeah. know. And in, in, in kabuki, sometimes the scenery becomes the foreground. And it's, it's almost as though each element tells the part of the story that it's best prepared to tell. And I was interested in experimenting with that in this film in that there would just be a song and you just see, say, Freddie Forrest doing nothing, but the song would be expressing or a dance would suddenly express it. So... I was also uh, trying to exper experiment with the idea of the different elements stepping out of their preordained order and, 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 and take, the, take mm -hmm. the star role, so to yeah. speak. I want to ask um, Kim Aubrey to join us. And uh, as he's coming up, I'll just say that he is in charge of post-production at American Zoetrope. Um, in his title, he's in charge of post-production and film science. And all technology. And all, all technology. All, 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 because we're always cooking up some mad invention, and ultimately it's put on his back. <laughs> And, uh, and Kim produced not only the DVD of this, but the wonderful Godfather triple-disc uh, DVD. Yeah, we make all our own DVD. That was another reason why we were in, we had this film. I said, gee, can't we, make, can't we get one from the heart? We own it. I mean, <laughs> those of you who work in this field know how tough rights are, that mm -hmm. you can't do anything because somebody owns the rights or controls the whites or their, or their heirs. Yeah. So here was a case where there was a movie we just owned lock, stock, and barrel, and that's why we wanted to, uh, you know, to, to, to renovate it and make a DVD of it. Yeah, who knew that it was going to take three years? Uh, you know, when we hmm. – it's really uh, true that when Francis mentioned, gee, we own one from the heart and there's this new format coming out, DVD, what do you know about it, Kim? Is this something that we could do ourselves – and at that time, the idea seemed very alien to us because we were mostly involved in film post-production and the idea of, I don't know, you know, video distribution seemed separate and maybe even not that interesting. But we, we studied it and we got very interested in it because it's really just a part of the same thing. It's presentation. And as we studied what we had available to us in terms of one-from-the-heart film elements, um, that became a big project. It wasn't something we were just going to crank out in six months and put on DVD. It became something that turned into some re-editing and looking for lost film elements, which took quite a bit of time and remastering. Meanwhile, we did build a DVD facility, and we started with Apocalypse Now and then yeah. uh, The Conversation, Tucker, and then The Godfather DVD collection. And and now we're we now making Lost in Translation. How long was the filming process? It was supposed to be that we were going to do 10 minutes in a day because the actors were just going to run through it and we were going to have multiple cameras. And all the sets were built so that if you, if you just did it, you could do it. But 
the the photographer uh, about three four weeks before we did really didn't want to shoot with multiple cameras and he came to me and said look well, if I shoot one camera at a time I can light it much better and and we'll do it just as fast. Well, we didn't do it just as fast. And <laughs> financially, we had spent all the money to be able to do it live, and then we didn't. And then we spent all the money to edit it together. So we had the worst of two worlds. There was in some phases we'd run out of money and, and, and uh, stuff like that. What well, was written about so much, I talked about all the press, but the, the van. I mean, I have to ask you about that, this um, mobile unit where you, had, where you were doing live editing and sort of... Um, well, that was yeah. interesting. When I was a UCLA student, I went one day uh, to visit Paramount Pictures when uh, Jerry Lewis was directing The Ladies' Man. And I was fascinated because Jerry Lewis was the director and the star, and he had mounted television cameras on the viewfinders of his, of his camera. And then he had a big two-inch tape uh, thing, so he would, after he shot, he would come down and they would play him and he'd look at his performance. After Jerry Lewis, that wasn't really done. And I always remembered that. So with One from the Heart, I thought, well, gee, what if we have, you know, 15 cameras and they all have video viewfinders and then they're all fed into a master control room? And that was this uh, Airstream trailer, which uh, the kids of the Outsiders later called the Silverfish, which right. st stuck even though I tried to not call it the Silverfish, you know. <laughs> but um, So you could sit in there. And then you would see all the feeds of all the cameras, and you could literally switch it like a lot, like Saturday Night Live has done today. Yeah. And the and you could talk with these really great uh, professional uh, intercoms for live, like for a baseball game, and talk to all the positions, talk to Richard Beggs who had the music. And the idea was that the director could be more like a maestro of a yeah. big orchestra and just call in things. And 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 and, and, and as you did a take, say, because film in those days. Uh, it was still limited by the fact that a roll of film in the camera was only 10 minutes. So, so today you could do it really live the way John Frankenheimer did it. But uh, at the time it went from the heart, we'd only be able to do 10 minutes at a time. And, and my thought was that if we could do it and actually be 10 finished minutes, you could even do it a second time and maybe get yeah. a better take, you know, like a, a better performance like in theater. What's remarkable about the film is the, the fluidity and the way that everything does feel choreographed, not just the music, but the words and the camera movement. Everything sort of feels of a musical piece. Working that way, did that help you achieve that? Yeah, I think the fact that we at first really tried to make it as a live cinema and then sort of had to back off, still you could see the attempt in there, the way it was staged, uh, certainly the use of the theatrical scrims. Uh, to do two scenes going back and forth, that would be all one take in that in that reel that had that. So so definitely the fluidity came yeah. from the attempt to make it like live television. Now of course Jerry Lewis also had that set that he revealed in Ladies Man, where he, you know that, that was the that was the that was the show I saw him, yeah. him work on. Okay, what can you tell an aspiring well, filmmaker? I would the say the things I I always shared with my children. My children always traveled with us whenever we went on a film. We always took them out of school, and as they became older, uh, they became interested in aspects of film, and I, I think the thing I always learned was that, you know, you want to reveal your own uh, feelings and your own biases and your own, uh, to keep it as personal as you can and try to avoid being forced into some genre or in a way of doing it that, that maybe uh, you might think might be more successful, but to, to always... Um, to keep it personal, that's what people want from you. If they're going to come and see your film, 
you know, part of me, as you can imagine, was like a boy scientist. So even though this film is very steeped in technology, in a sense, that was also revealing something personal about me. Uh, and also in the conversation, I mean, he's a little guy with his uh, <laughs> tape recorders, and that was me. I was paralyzed, and I was the uh, uh, only subject I was good in at school was science, you know. <laughs> you know so, and, uh, and and that advice about making it personal, for example, when uh, my children made films in Sophia's new film, I mean, she she didn't expect. Uh, any kind of real acclaim for it. She just kept saying, well, it's just like a poem, and I don't know if anyone will be interested in it, you know. And and uh, and, I, and I would always say, you know, the more, even with Virgin Suicides or even my boy Roman's film, the more it's you and it's more it's what you love, that's the most you can do for your, your audience or your reader or your the, the people you're hoping to uh, reach out to. And what what was um, the the working relation with, between Storaro and Dean Tavalaris? Because the the obviously Storaro has his ideas and theories about color, which are so strong. Well, um, of course, Dean Tavalaris had been uh, the production designer of of all my films since uh, the first Godfather, and Vittorio Storaro had uh, been with us in in that great adventure that was a. a Apocalypse Now, and I was uh, as uh, I was in theater. I was at first in theater involved in the technology. I had the great honor and pleasure of being one of the assistants to a man named George Eisenhower, who created the electronic lighting board, the first lighting board that, that was made for CBS and done at Yale. Preset electronics was the, was the uh, work of this man, in, in really in an early time in the 50s when uh, you know the personal computer was far from even being hatched. So he was working in, a, in a preset light boards, and I was a boy scientist, and he created an uh, automated uh, fly system for theater, which I was one of the assistants on. So uh, I loved lighting boards and stuff like that. So when we bought the studio, I bought the biggest kind of lighting system on earth. And in the movies, they used to use dimmer boards in the black and white days uh, in early films, because there was no problem of color temperature, but when movies went color, they stopped using dimmers or even fiddling with that because when the bulb goes up to its um, intensity, it changes color temperature, and they were frightened that that would be very... At each level of technology, sound and color, they're like purists about it, you know? So I said, well, what's the difference if the color cha temperature changes? It'll It'll be interesting. It'll be weird. And so I bought this lighting system, and Vittorio absolutely fell in love with this dimmer board. And to this day, he never makes a movie without having mm. his own dimmer guy there. But he had mm. never seen it before, and it only came from my experience in theater, running the lights, you know. What well, in truth, Storaro was the cinematographer, but he was Italian, and uh, he was not in the American uh, Union so he, uh, even though we owned the, I owned the studio, I, I, I had uh, to hire a, a, a very lovely guy, American uh, cinematographer, who had to be there. And we had to double the crew because the crew was Italian. So it was more a function of, of a union requirement. Interesting note for you on that subject. In, in the early days when I wanted Walter Murch to um, do sound for the movies. He was not in the union, and they said, we kept trying to give him credits, and, and they said, well, it cannot have the word uh, editor in any way, shape, or form. Mm. So we said sound design. Mm. And that's where that ter that's term came from, to that, avoid huh? <laughs> the fact that we weren't allowed to call him an editor. 
it's one of the great enigmas, but it's true all around the world, that wherever there is a film school in the same institution that has a theater school, the two never cooperate with each other. Uh, the the you would think well the actors from the theater would certainly be uh, you know wonderful to work with the filmmakers and um, uh, it never has happened. My brother was the dean of San Francisco State and he really tried by 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 edict to make them do it together and it's just something about the personality. The personality of theater students are very much like the gang, you know, it's they love to work together and then go out and have coffee together and they're like to be together. Whereas the film students are like loners and they lock <laughs> they lock themselves in the room and they lock the editing machine so no one else can use it, you know. <laughs> so having been both a theater student and a, and a film student, I, I experienced that firsthand, but UCLA came and, and uh, recently and asked me if I could give them advice to the program, and I said, have the first year uh, directing yeah. students only direct one-act plays uh, because that's the opportunity to to, to work with, with, with writing. I mean, after all, let's face it, cinema, theater, it's all about where writing comes together with acting. That's what it always was and what I think it will always be. That's the two, that's the oxygen and hydrogen that come together. So I said, let the directors for film work with, you know, there's such wonderful one-act play uh, literature, plus you can write them, plus you can do three of them or four if one short and give four directors a chance. So UCLA has the, the program of their cinema students uh, must do one-act plays in, in the first year. And my kids, I used to, uh, in the summer, uh, my children, uh, um, Roman and Sophia, uh, Jason Schwartzman, when they were, they, you know, Jason was like 14, I said, okay, this summer we're having creative, we're having creativity camp, and mm -hmm. we're going to do one-act plays. No, we don't want to do one-act plays. We want to fish. Can't we come to Napa and just be lazy and fish? I said, well, no, we're doing one-act plays. We had little plays to be theater. So and we don't want and blah, blah. so I I said okay you don't have to I'm gonna do a one act play and if we can have three or four in an evening if anyone else wants to you can but if not I mean and I went ahead and did some Thornton Wilder play all alone and little by little uh, Sophia said well I want to do Bernice, oh, Bernice Bob's her hair. hair. Right. She did Which that, and hmm. then uh, Jason, who was 13, wrote some very heavy Tennessee Williams kind of play about <laughs> three men who meet in a bar on New Year's Eve, and it turns out a woman had died uh, years before, and one man was the husband, one man was the lover, <laughs> and one was the man driving the car that hit her when she ran out. And this, this kid was 13, you know, <laughs> so he did that. And uh, and Roman, the last minute, you know, he said, well, he, he did Mooney's Kid Don't Cry, but there was no room in the theater because we were rehearsing, so mm -hmm. he had to rehearse in the night. And then they all did it, and then we invited like a hundred neighbors and had a program and uh, and and did stuff like that. And I, I feel really that as my children start to really, you know, find themselves as, as, uh, as uh, were so moved that they are. It was from some of those things. Interestingly enough, be, uh, Jason was a writer, and uh, Sophia knew some casting person from Wes, uh, who, 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 uh, Wes Anderson who was looking for a boy. He said, well, my cousin Jason is like really sounds mm, perfect, and that's how he got the part in Rushmore. Rushmore. So good things come when you get together and do theater, is what I'm saying. What what up and coming directors do you do you respect? Well, I am very impressed with the young directors. I like. Uh, David Russell and Spike Jones, uh, 
uh, Soderbergh, uh, um, Alexander Payne, the guy who did Punch Drunk Love. I thought Punch Drunk Love was very. I loved. And <laughs> grazie. <laughs> <laughs> And Sophia, Sophia, Sophia's mo- movie is beautiful, you know, uh, definitely. Okay, so how did you get hooked up with Tom Waits, and how did you work together? Originally, my first idea was to ha- to go to Van Morrison, and I went to Van Morrison. I had a very interesting meeting. He was very nice, but he basically told me right to my face that basically he doesn't write his music; God writes his music, <laughs> and and. And and he couldn't possibly write a, a series of songs for something because he doesn't decide what to write. It just sort of comes. And when I, you know, and I understood that, you know, a genius, as I certainly th- thought he was and, and think he was, I understood. And so I didn't know who to get him. My boy Gio suggested Tom Waits. He gave me the record, and on the record was a song with Bette Midler. And I heard that, and it was a dialogue between a man and a woman, Bette Midler and Tom. And I said, that's what we should do. We, since we can't have our protagonists actually sing, because that would be a real musical and you couldn't do that, what if we had uh, that musical uh, dialogue between a man and a woman? And we tried even to get Bette Midler to do it with Tom, but for some reason she wasn't able to. And uh, But that was the beginning of it. And working with Tom, and we would spend hours sitting around, and uh, as you see, I just burst into song at any opportunity. And uh, and then he would, we gave him a room in at the studio and with a piano, and he would stay there all night. And there was a reader from Zoetrope who was reading up the hall, and she would hear the music, and that, that's Mrs. Waits today for, for many years. He would come up with ideas, and then we would talk about them, and he would write this poetry. You know, all art, you kind of go step by step. You don't really know where you're going. You know maybe what the question is, but the answer you have to arrive at by working uh, working it out and following your nose. Both music and uh, cinema I- exist both in a spatial sense mm-hmm. as well as in an, a narrative sense. Uh, music has harmony, which is spatial, and then also... Uh, in time and cinema is the same so they really go well together and, and, and I think more experimentation is going to happen uh, in, in, in the future and when I say future I'm talking 300 years as the cinema really kind of finds its voice in the most amazing ways I, I was raised in, in a musical family and for example uh, I can sing any song from any musical show stops at hair so it means no song time and it doesn't go. It doesn't go before um, the 30s, you know, like Shoba. the 40s. Well, I could do sober Shoba. but uh, if you throw out a, so- a show <laughs> name, if it's not Wildcat or I do, I do, I will sing you a song from it. <laughs> this is a real challenge. Does someone right. have it? They don't want to. I don't a care. Song title? No, no, no. Nobody a show. Says, nope. A show. Oh, come on. <laughs> Fools give you reasons, wise man never try. South Pacific. My uncle was the musical director of New Faces of 52 and, and, uh, oh, what was the, the most happy fella? The boyfriend. Yeah, he did many, 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 many shows and, and opera.
that's a big plus of the film is that we have Raoul in, 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 in that moment. Uh, he was just the most wonderful person. He was just a great friend, and he was always uh, just always game. We had one little anecdote. I'll say I, I think I had my fortieth birthday during this. Uh, basically, I spent age forty to fifty paying off this film. <laughs> forty to fifty is a very important decade for a man, but that's what I did. But um, on uh, my 40th birthday, we decided with all the group, everyone was going to have, a, a, among other things, a camp out. And they all came up to Napa, and we pitched tents, and we made barbecues. It was really a beautiful night. And a limousine came up through this kind of place they didn't think a car could get to. And out comes Raul Julia in a tuxedo, and uh, his driver put together his tent for him. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he kind of came like Noel Coward to this camp out. <laughs> That's a, a memory that was really wonderful. Okay, so Pennies yeah. from Heaven, which came out around that time. Yeah, I, I loved I loved Pennies from Heaven. I loved that dance that, uh, that Chris Walken did. I thought it was the most spectacular scene where he kicks down the walls. And yeah. No, it was, uh, I thought that was a really, and, and Gordy Willis was the photographer. That was a film I had great admiration for. Okay, what, direct, what film directors influenced you? Well, I was a theater student uh, and planning to go to the Yale uh, graduate school in theater. And uh, I, I loved musicals, so maybe I might have pursued that. But one day at the school, it was like 4 o'clock, I walked by what was called a little theater, and I saw a, a, a sign that said, Today, uh, Sergei Eisenstein's 10 Days That Shook the World, or mm -hmm. October. And I look, you know, I never heard of it or anything. And I went in, I was six people in this thing, and I sat for the whole, I think that must be, uh, if not a four-hour movie, a two-and-a-half-hour movie or something, and I was just so overwhelmed uh, with what I saw. It was a silent film. And when I walked out, I knew I wanted to make film. And it was interesting because Eisenstein himself had been a theater director and a designer, and he he talked about, of course, and I read all of his books and, and the books about him. He talks about once they staged the, uh, a play in a gas factory called Gasworks or something, and he, he remarked how after he did that, he says, the cart of theater broke and the driver fell into cinema. Mm -hmm. and that's exactly how I felt seeing uh, Eisenstein's film. But then the other uh, people in that era, which is now in the 50s, late uh, 55, 56, of course, uh, we knew of um, the young American directors who were only like 21, Stanley Kubrick and John Frankenheimer, who had uh, made a big impression on me. If you've never seen a live television, uh, and some there are some tapes, uh, a John Frankenheimer live television show, you will be amazed. There's one in particular called The Comedian hmm. with Mel Torme and uh, Mickey Rooney, I think, and it's just and it's available on, on video. So I admired those guys, and then, of course, Orson Welles. I knew everything about Orson Welles because yeah. he came out of theater. Right. And as a kid, I could kind of talk like, <coughs> I could do like, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Was that, was that the nose that launched a thousand ships and burned the top? Of <laughs> so I was a little bit like a, wanted to be like Orson Welles and very much admired him. And of course, Citizen Kane, I mean, made yeah. by a 25-year-old. I mean, that was, and then all those great films in the 50s that we would see, the Kurosawa films, and Seven Samurai, and Yojimbo, and Federico Fellini, uh, Il Vitolone, and The White Sheik, and just one great movie, and and after another, and the Bergman films were out. So that was a very rich time uh, if you had, if the theater in your neighborhood would play those films. And mm -hmm. and um, so I love Fellini. I love, uh, 
I once wrote a letter to the um, to the Nobel Committee suggesting that Akira Kurosawa should be given the Nobel Prize for Literature, and they wrote a letter back saying, we don't accept uh, suggestions. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the truth is I've been writing a, a script, an ambitious script, sort of like not that elective affinities one, but one that, that I've damned myself with ambition again. <laughs> and I, 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 I kind of can't do anything unless I can pull this off. I've had a lot of trouble doing it. I have never given up. I won't even tell you how many years I've been working on it. I'm always, it's sort of like just being in love with one woman and no matter what, that's the only thing you can think of and the only thing that brings you joy. And even though I know that the script of this project I've been working on, I, I have far from licked, um, I am always enthusiastic to work on it and I really hope I can make it one day and, and that I haven't uh, made it too ambitious, that I haven't made it beyond my capabilities. Or, or I think it's good if you make something just above your capabilities because uh, you'll you'll really uh, well I'll tell you a little story about my father when my dad was a solo flute for Toscanini sometimes the guest conductors would come and the great Russian Prokofiev came to conduct and my dad was playing the flute and in one passage uh, it was very high and he went after and he said maestro please tell me why did you he was interested in composition he says why did you score that part for the flute because uh, it's in the piccolo's range, and, and, and he said, because I wanted you to strain for it. So, you know, if you, if you try something above your capability, even though you probably won't entirely pull it off, you may come close, or you may do something be at the very limit of your ability. If a man's yeah. reach doesn't exceed his grasp, what's the heavens for? And I've been in that situation because I, it's, it kind of happened after one. When one from the heart came out, as you know, it was a, disastrous um, failure, uh, and, and so much so that the reason it was never shown, and they talk about, ah, it didn't make $2 or whatever, is because I owned the picture and I pulled it back. My feelings were so hurt at having the picture be pre-reviewed before it was done, uh, you know, uh, that, that I yanked it back, and so it was never shown. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, we brought it out now. You know, it was a very low period for me because I'd also lost all, any and all money I had, and, and, and I had a huge bank coming after me. And, and uh, I thought, well, the crazy thing is that I took such a risk, and it wasn't really even a script that I wrote myself. You know, and, 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 and if you are going to, like, really chuck it all and, take the big gamble, it should be something very personal to you and beyond the idea of having a studio and all that wonderful stuff we were doing, uh, you know, this story was someone else's script, what have you. So in those days and in, the, in that mood of failure, I, I, I decided I'm going to pick a, a, a movie that I will write and that will be my dream movie and maybe it'll be the last movie I ever make. And all through those years when I was, you know, doing Peggy Sue Got Married and uh, whatever, all the films I made, I was always trying to work on this one. That's the same one I'm working on now. Megalopolis. Megalopolis, yeah. Okay. And, uh, and um, if you could tell us anything about what sort of new uses of technology or what, you know, what are some of your ideas of how you're going to approach film with that, with Megalopolis? Well, of course, the big news uh, is sad news and happy news at the same time, which is the fact that we are now in the digital era where they can make a, uh, a camera that passes really the apogee of what film could do. I, w I once, uh, when Dr. Land, you know, the great Dr. Land of Polaroid was really retiring, but he was sort of kicked out of his company because he had made a, an instant movie camera called the 
polar polar vision. And I read uh, about it, and I always admired those kind of people. So I went and I got a beautiful first edition of the Goethe color theory. Goethe also worked on a color theory. He was a scientist, too, in color, which is very hard to get. And I, I called, I didn't know them, and asked, could I come to see Dr. Land and, and bring him a present and the commemorating his leaving. And, and he received me, and he spent the whole day with me. And uh, I gave him this book. And we talked a little bit about the polar vision. And, and I said, well, gee, I said, you know, there are going to be these little video cameras that are going to be able to do everything but way beyond. And he said, ah, he says, but... But the photochemical, you know, film is at the apogee of its development. <laughs> and, and I understood that film, which we, we all love, you know, reached this incredible beauty. Uh, but, you know, you have to use the technology of the day, and that's right. going to be the di- digital image, and it's going to be beautiful. Already it, it can be beautiful. I've been experimenting a lot with it. So uh, in the future, you know, they won't uh, hate to say it, but they won't make film. Well, thanks for sharing this beautiful film. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.